Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People this week, the Brexit debate plums new depths. I've been wondering what that special place in hell looks like for those who promoted Brexit without even a sketch of a plan how to carry it safe. Theresa May enters her own hell with a visit to Brussels. I'm clear that I am going to deliver Brexit. I'm going to deliver it on time. That's what I'm going to do for the British public. I'll be negotiating hard in the coming days to do just that. But Jeremy Corbyn offers her a way out. Most rational people, I think, in this country are sick of Brexit. They want us to get something through, move on, and that's what the letter that we sent to the Prime Minister is trying to do. Hello, welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh. We meet as Theresa May visits Brussels for Brexit talks on the Irish backstop, which even Downing Street admits will not be easy. Joining me to assess her chances of success is Paul Wall. Hiya. Hi, Paul. We have Anand Menon, director of the UK in a changing Europe think tank. Hi, Anand. Hi, Anand. He's a fellow Yorkshireman and Leeds United fan as well. Always good to have on the podcast. And also joining us is Rachel Wearmouth. Hello. Hi, Rachel. So we're in the slightly odd position today of having to discuss events as they happen. Um, The Prime Minister's in Brussels trying to reform the Irish backstop, um, but ran into some difficulty even before she arrived yesterday. Um, we're now going to hear from European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker saying alternative arrangements cannot replace the backstop. The so-called uh, uh, alternative arrangements can never replace the backstop. We need the backstop. We need the withdrawal agreement. And when it comes to future relations, we can have a look into um, alternative arrangements, but they will never replace the backstop. Paul, the PM isn't going to get very much today, is she, in Brussels? Well, not on the face of it. Uh, number 10 are, are sort of calming the temperature, saying don't expect much. You know, there's going to be no sort of major public statement afterwards. What we already have is a joint statement from Juncker and from May, which is in itself quite significant. It shows that they both want to be seen to be working together, both want to be seen to be constructive. Um, but of course, no one was expecting any great breakthrough. What will be interesting is just what they discussed and what she felt she could go to dangle in front of the EU. The EU have been saying, look, give us give us something, give us something, anything. Um, and I was told that the really interesting thing is that the number 10 are keeping it very, very confidential what, what her requests are going to be. But I think we can guess already that this mad thing called the Malthouse Compromise um, is not really a runner. And the the EU have narrowed down the other options, which was, you know, Juncker yesterday talked about he wasn't very keen on the idea of an exit mechanism. So I think what you are really finally looking at, again, is some legally binding form of words about the backstop and limiting it, make sure it's not indefinite. Yeah, it was interesting yesterday. Juncker ruled out alternative arrangements and a unilateral exit mechanism but Tusk only hinted at opposition to a time limit. Yeah. And could something be done on the timing of the backstop? Something. 
I fear not, to be honest, because I think the Irish have been quite clear about this. If it's time limited, it's not a backstop. I mean, brutally, what Theresa May achieved yesterday was she ticked another day off. And that's quite clearly her strategy now, isn't it? Leave as few days as possible between getting this vote and the 29th of March, and there'll be so much pressure on MPs that they'll eventually have to cave in. And I think that is where she is. I mean, what has staggered me about this is the complete absence of choreography. You would have thought, wouldn't you, if you were doing this, and it's been quite clear where this has been going for a while now, that number 10 has to go back to the EU. They have to pretend that they've changed something they haven't changed, and they have to dress it up in language that will appeal to enough MPs in the House of Commons. Any other prime minister I can think of would have tried to coordinate this with Brussels, so at least they were singing from the same (laughs) hymn sheet. This number 10 is such a bunker at the moment. They don't talk to their own cabinet. They don't talk to the EU. They don't talk to anyone. And and they're then surprised when people aren't quite clear what they're after. Yeah, and and, I mean, that lack of coordination seemed to manifest itself yesterday when the UK seemed to be blindsided by Donald Tusk's comments, for example. What what did you make of... The day in the EU yesterday when we saw people lining up to to make some fairly um, bold statements. Well, he's got form, hasn't he? I mean, and he's quite pleased with himself. Whether he's sort of quoting song lyrics or doing Instagram he or whatever, pop, doesn't he? He likes he he likes British pop. He likes speaking in English. And he likes making what he thinks are funny quips in English. I don't think it was very helpful at all. I think it was a silly thing to do myself. I mean, I don't see why any of the people who are acting upset should be upset. But nevertheless. I don't think that's a way of pushing us towards agreement, and that presumably should be his priority. I mean, what was it all about, Paul and Rachel? What what was Donald Tusk trying to do with that yesterday? Was it a smokescreen? Well, that's the the, the question we need to be answered need to see answered really I think um, what was really interesting this week was when I um, doorstepped the usual weekly meeting of the European Research Group which is all of the the hardline Brexiteers and they're they're trying to present a very um, like moderate front if you like and that we're we're, we're quite happy with things but there's really a lot more going on there I think there's a lot of mistrust of Theresa May Um, I spoke to to one senior MP on Tuesday night who said to me um, and he's usually quite conciliatory said to me um we don't know who Theresa May is for maybe she's only for herself and then when I asked him again about um some of these meetings that we hear are happening between Greg Clark and the unions and there may be some kind of compromise with with Labour where she can get votes on her side um he went on to say um I've completely given up on Greg Clark. He might as well go and join a union himself. <laughs> so so they're, they're all um, there is not content. There is isn't there, amongst those Tories, and that's obviously what will worry the government. I mean, their strategy is obvious, as Anand says. It's not just to run down the clock to scare everyone, but it's also to say, look, the only possible way through this is if the DUP is satisfied. If the DUP are satisfied, then they take a big chunk of the European Brexit, the European Research Group, the Brexiteers are on the back benches. Um, and then you get the chunk of Labour leavers. You can see the numbers. You can see, and we saw that in the Brady Amendment. So you can see what the whips and what number 10 are calculating. They're playing with fire with the Brexiteers, though, if they don't, if they don't get a, a decent chunk of them uh, on board with whatever this proposal is. And I think the only way they're going to do this is, I think it's it's Mufasa, it's our old friend, the Attorney General, Jeffrey Cox, the man who sounds like the Lion King character, the booming baritone. I, th- I can see a situation where he reacts to whatever cobbled form of words comes out of Brussels and then comes to the House of Commons and declares, this is my legal advice, this is what's going to happen. And I think, uh, actually, this is legally binding and the, it means it won't be indefinite and then that's the way through. 
This is really interesting, actually, because I was speaking to a Brexiteer source this week who said a common statement from Geoffrey Cox wouldn't be enough. Ah. And actually, it needs to be written legal advice. Well, yeah. And they'd been studying Lord Goldsmith's advice on the Iraq war. Yep. And the statement he gave to Parliament, I think, to the Lords yep. was very different to his written advice. Well, I think that is a good point. They will probably demand written legal advice. But from what I understand, number 10, now the precedent's been set and not unhappy with that, believe it or not. I mean, to even say that they're prepared to do it, you know, like a year ago, it's unthinkable. But yeah, the precedent's been set. And I think they will in some way allow publication of that advice because they'll be worried about Labour will, you know, do an humbled address and then we'll try and do a contempt motion. Why bother with that again? But I was told that actually when he does do this, that will break the logjam. That will get the DUP, give them cover to say, yeah, well, OK, the government has legally decided this is binding and loads of these MPs will say, OK, all right, if he's, if, if he's happy with it, that's fine. And it's really interesting you mentioned Iraq because two things. One is this week we had the left-wing union, the TSSA, who, and we're going to come on to Labour in a minute, but um, who, who did a poll showing that actually the damage to Labour, if it backed a Tory Brexit, would be as bad or worse than Labour and the Iraq war. But actually the second thing is to remember Goldsmith. I remember being at the Hutton Inquiry and going to this in great detail at the Chilcot Inquiry too. There was this lovely memo which was unearthed during all that period from the Americans talking about Attorney General Lord Goldsmith, who was originally unhappy about the Iraq war and didn't have a firm enough opinion about it. And there was a guy called John Berenger in the States who said, after visiting a visit to Washington from Goldsmith, saying, uh, we had your attorney over. We got him there in the end. Now, I think that's exactly what's happening on Brexit. We'll get Jeffrey Cox there in the end is number t- number 10's view. And as soon as you get Brexiteer Cox making this legally binding statement, I think they think that's the way through. Now, it might sound like fantasy politics, but if there is a way through, that'll be it, I think. Well, it's the world of the fig leaf, isn't it? Yeah. That's where we are now. Essentially, everyone's after a fig leaf. And the, the Iraq analogy is fascinating, isn't it? Because it shows that ultimately... No one cares if the law's right or not. They just want something that will give them cover to vote for this thing. And that's That's it. Uh, Now, Jeremy Corbyn has made a big offer to back Theresa May's Brexit deal if she meets five key demands, including customs union membership. Um, We're now going to hear the PM's deputy, David Liddington, not quite fully dismissing the idea. Um, I'd be asking what on earth they mean when they say that they want to be in a customs union with the EU, but also for Britain to have a say in EU trade policy with other countries. That's not something that's allowed under the European treaties. It's, it, so you know, this seems to be wishful thinking. So, you know, but let's, but let's get down and have those talks with, talks with them. Paul, Theresa May's never going to accept these demands, is she, or, or is she? Well, it's funny you say that because I actually talked to a cabinet minister at the weekend who said, actually, when I said, look, there's no way the PM's going to go for a customs union. This is even before Corbyn's latest, you know, olive branch. Uh, And they said, well, actually, don't rule it out completely because, and I said, but what about the Tory party splitting? Yeah, but what do you mean by split, this cabinet minister said? Where will they go? Where will Tory Brexiteers go? Are they going to found their own party? No. What's going to happen to them? I said, but come on, there's going to be grassroots revolt if you go for a customs union. And they, what was surprised me is how sanguine they were that actually some form of language, you wouldn't call it a customs union, you call it a customs arrangement. They've used that language, as Liddington already said, in the, in the political declaration. So the, you can see for them, there's not a massive leap. It's just whether or not actually it's going to be sellable to their party. It's not a massive leap because it's essentially the backstop. I mean, that's what's so weird about it. And that's, that's their first line of defence, isn't it? Which is to say to Lally, OK, you won that, you've already got it. 
what's your problem? So, you know, one calculation is we will get Labour on side by not moving ourselves, but by opening their eyes to what we've already agreed. Now, there are shifts on the Labour side. I'm not sure they'll get enough that way. They might have to stick a bit more language in there. Uh, But, you know, everyone who's looked at the political declaration knows you, you can do anything with that. I mean, apart from free movement... Nothing is ruled out. So a customs union is perfectly plausible. It's really elastic, isn't it? It's just like the point we're talking about on the law. You know, you can, you can, the law is quite flexible in international law for Iraq when it comes to the, the law on the European Union, whether or not this is legally binding for the government. Again, what's elastic, even more elastic, is this thing called a political declaration, which is a part two of the, the Brexit deal. Everyone talks about the withdrawal agreement, which is a part one, the divorce terms, basically. The, with the political declaration is what's going, what's life like in the future? And Alan's right, you know, the EU are perfectly happy to, to be flexible on that because they're not bound by it. You know, it's not a legal, legally binding document in the same way as the withdrawal agreement. So to be honest, you come back to this whole thing about a blindfold Brexit. The thing that Labour always railed against was, well, we can't agree to this because we don't know where we're going. But actually, it might be Jeremy Corbyn's way out of this. You, we don't know where we're going, but, you know, that means that we're not tied to anything particular. And Rachel, you've been talking to Labour leavers over the last couple of weeks um, and and they've been saying they want to be able to shape that future relationship. Yeah, so so much interesting stuff going on behind the scenes with the the Labour Party at the moment. Uh, I spoke to one MP who said that it there's nothing in the withdrawal agreement that they would actually really do that much differently and it's not about that anymore. It's now about the future relationship um, and how that's going to work out and what controls that they can um, get over that to make sure that they can shape the future somewhat. Um, I spoke to one MP who told me they had um, a, f- a few demands in the next um, next few weeks. Uh, one was a, a joint committee of both houses, which which I thought was quite interesting. Could that um, could that involve some peers? We know that there are a lot of high profile Remainer peers that um, would spring to mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, they, they also want um, a, a vote on the 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 trade deal essentially, so a vote on the, the future relationship. Um, and they also want to see a, a workers' rights bill which would nail down um, British workers' rights to align with those of the EU. Another part of Labour's plan is for a strong single market relationship. Um, this and is what, can yeah. I ask Adam what the hell that means? Is it unicorn? Yeah, if anyone would know, you would. I you? Have, what I does have... it mean? Strong single market relationship. Well, I think there is a difference amongst the Labour front bench on what that means, because Keir Starmer very clearly is edging towards freedom of movement. Uh, In the interview he gave the other night, he didn't quite get there, but he got a lot closer than Jeremy Corbyn has got. So for him, a strong single market relationship looks like perhaps Switzerland, which is slightly attenuated freedom of movement with most of the single market, or Norway, you know, the full Monty. Corbyn's nowhere near that yet. So I think when Corbyn talks about a strong single market relationship, he means it simply as fluff a way of making things sound better than they really are while committing to nothing. Now, it seems to me that Corbyn is winning that at the moment. Corbyn seems to be imposing his line on the party. I was fascinated by the Lisa Nandy piece on Monday, which again seemed to signal a shift. She seemed to be saying, I can live with this withdrawal agreement. Uh, And I thought that was absolutely critical because I've not heard her say that before. And in fact, the last time I heard her speak about this was before Christmas. She said, there's no way I can sign up to this withdrawal agreement. It's the same one. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> ties in with Rachel's point. Yeah. That there are people on low benches who think, let's agree this withdrawal agreement and then let's, let's really unpick the political declaration. That's where we should push. I personally think that this is, that the Corbyn strategy is a, is a clean hand strategy. 
That's what it is. Yeah. That's pure and simple. Yeah. He'll let the, the, the dirty work be done by Lisa Dandy and other backbenchers to get it over the line. He, he can say, I've not collaborated with a vicious, awful, austerity-driven Tory government. I never will, dear Labour member or dear Labour voter. But actually, at the same time, he'll love the fact that Brexit is actually delivered for a lot of those leave areas. So I do think, you know... He's not a duplicitous man, Jeremy Corbyn, by nature, but he's, he's canny enough. The people around him are canny enough to know that might be the way through for them. And I think the, the fly in the ointment is this whole people's vote and second referendum. Don't forget, only today, Matthew Pennycook, shadow Brexit minister, threw a real spanner in the works by tweeting, actually, despite the Jeremy, Lee, Jeremy Corden's new offer to Theresa May, his five new uh, demands, actually, if none of those is met, if it's not met in full, he said, then we, the position is we go towards a people's vote. Now, that's quite ballsy for a shadow frontbencher. That might be someone who thinks, well, you know, this is my last shot at this. You know, I'm not going to be here forever post-Brexit. There are even rumours that the whole of the shadow Brexit team might quit en masse. Who knows? Yeah. Or be fired. Who knows? But I thought that was quite interesting. It was quite ballsy. I'd say two things. One, it could have been a put-up job. Because actually, for the, for the silent backbenchers who never talk about Brexit, the real fear is a people's vote. They don't want to go there. And actually, hearing someone like Matthew Pennycook talking about it might be the Philip they need to push them towards supporting this. So I wouldn't, yeah. you know, there might that be a bit really of double dealing. But actually, yeah. the other thing I would say is, I mean, Parliament now is all about plausible deniability on both sides. <laughs> Corbyn wants a deal to go through without his fingerprints on. The Tories are thinking it's going to have to go through, but I want to be able to say I never like this deal once it's gone through. Everyone is, you know, and it's a nightmare scenario for the medium term, isn't it? Is we'll get an agreement that actually in Parliament only Theresa May is going to be seen as having supported, which just... yeah. We're going to be unhappy forever. Why do you think we've got ourselves into that situation? Do you think people are actually just starting to get bored, as Barry Gardner said this morning, and want <laughs> Brexit to be over and just think, let's get the deal through? Or do you think people went too hard in opposition against the deal to start with without realising it couldn't actually change well, much? Well, I think it's like any negotiation. You start high with big demands and inevitably you come down and you compromise. It's the way the world works. And this is no different from the way the world works. It's just in a very, very surreally done format. I mean, also in a, a very weird format format with a hung parliament so I think actually um, and I, I said this yesterday that I think the only way through this is if all sides are allowed to claim a victory it's the only way any proper negotiation happens so it happened in the Good Friday Agreement for God's sake both sides are allowed to claim victory and it's the same here so if you don't be surprised if they say completely different things when this deal comes out the, the DUP say, yeah, it's fantastic, we've really forced B Brussels to back down. D the Brussels and Ireland will say, yeah, we got our way, we got our backstop, we got all our guarantees, despite what the DUP said. And, you know, I think that's the only way through it. And the Labour leavers will say, you know, we got our way, we've delivered for our voters. Everyone claiming credit, I think, for those who pass it, leave Corbyn aside, is the only way through. And there's just, there's no electoral advantage in coming down on one side of Brexit, you know, because the the population is also split, so it serves both parties to appeal to both sides at different points. Yeah, absolutely. And this has caused a bit of chaos in Labour today, hasn't it, this this offer from Corbyn among the people's vote-supporting MPs? Yeah. And there is some speculation that this could be the moment that maybe they quit or make... Well, well one of them did suggest it, didn't he? Was it Owen Smith suggested that he it, might actually walk... Um, party, yeah, entirely. Um, Chukra Amuna also... Um, tweeted just just now that um this is not opposition you know he's, he's had a furious thread hitting out at, at corbyn online and 
I think they would have to go in the next few weeks, the People's Vote um, branch, if they if they really want to to get any traction, and they might you might see them go a bit kamikaze. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think the thing is that on the back of this, of course, on Monday at the PLP, the Parliamentary Labour Party meeting, I was there and it was dominated by the anti-Semitism row. You get the feeling that people like, you know, Luciana Berger, um, actually, this would be what tips them over the edge. If 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 Labour appears to be supporting a Tory deal, plus not sorting out its anti-Semitism problem, then why am I in this party? Um, Isn't it a strange time to go? Because actually, in the very unlikely event they get what they want they're going to need the resources of the Labour Party to campaign within that referendum. So actually jumping ship to get a referendum, it will be harder to win if you're not in the party when it happens. Oh, completely. I mean, the only way a referendum will ever be delivered is if a, a Labour Party delivers it, huh. you know, um, or agrees to it. And I think the real danger, though, and they're right to spot this danger, is that as soon as Brexit deal goes through, you can kiss goodbye to any hope of a second referendum. Yeah. Some of them have a vague hope that they can have a referendum after we've left, which is frankly bonkers. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's why it's high stakes. That's why they're all getting excited, uh, agitated, people like Chukwu Muna. They, you know, to be fair to them, they really passionately believe it. And you might say the really ballsy MPs in Parliament are the ones like Bridget Phillipson, who are in high, heavily mm-hmm. leave seats, mm-hmm. who are making a really strong case for Remain and for a second referendum. Because that takes guts it doesn't take guts to be honest to to say to your leave voters if you've got them actually i'm on your side what takes guts is to stand up to them and say actually i think you're wrong and your long-term interests will be damaged your jobs will be going and they don't get enough of a show in this debate mm. i mean you get lots of chuckers but you don't get many bridget phillipson's mm. mary cray's another one mary cray yeah yeah, yeah. we could have done with julie elliott with those one. kind of voices a bit earlier couldn't we or, or you know more of those kind of voices in the they would have given debate. credibility to this people's vote in a yeah. different yeah. way i think yeah, yeah. Um, now, we are kind of uh, assuming here that the deal goes through now, or at least thinking it has a high chance of going through. But Paul and Rachel, you've been digging up stories about the, the real world impact of a no deal Brexit this week, including the reintroduction of mobile phone roaming charges and possible blanket zero tariffs on all imports. Um, we're now going to hear from Labour Deputy Leader Tom Watson asking an urgent question in the Commons on Paul's story on roaming charges. If the Honourable Member opposite doesn't want to go down in history as the minister for the Tory triple whammy tourist tax, I suggest he takes a different course. So what's going on with our phone bills if we quit with no deal? Well, don't forget that this was seen as one of the great boons to all consumers and holidaymakers and business travellers in Europe. Uh, in 2017, the EU agreed this this long-awaited deal to, to make sure you could have free roaming on your phone. Um, now, at the time, what was really interesting, and Watson was very smart in doing this in the chamber today, he pointed out that Ed Vasey, the government's digital minister at the time, said this was a fantastic development. It was amazing. Um, and it would it, even before it happened, he was saying, the Tory government were saying, look customers will save millions of pounds thanks to this. Yet what happens today is that you get Jeremy Wright, the culture secretary, stand up and confirm our story, which was we spotted a a statutory instrument which showed that the government under a no-deal scenario, would indeed scrap the free-roaming idea. Um, and he, you get him up there, the cabinet minister admitting this, and saying, well, actually, uh, well, it could be consumers could benefit from competition. All these phone companies could actually really, you know, it's not in their interest to put these charges on. Now, OK, maybe some of them would think like that. But 
the whole point of this legislation is you can't trust the industry to police itself or competition to work. So it's a really difficult one for the government. Um, they all admitted today that actually it was going to happen and they couldn't guarantee rates would go up. So unlike a lot of things we talk about on this podcast, this has real world pounds and pence impact on a lot of people who are not even remotely interested in politics. They'll go on holiday and they'll get a whacking phone bill for just simply being in Alicante for two weeks or whatever. Now, um, I find that that point of contact with the real world voters is what makes this story sing. That's why it got a massive follow on Twitter and, and in Facebook yesterday. Um, people are worried about it. But also, don't forget, there's an advantage to the government here. Mm. Jeremy Wright basically said it as much today, saying, well, OK, if you don't have a no deal, then you could have this nightmare scenario. So, again, you come back to the government strategy of saying, you know, let's scare the hell out of people. I mean, why why didn't they scare the hell out of people with this story? What why? Because they're nervous of their own backbenchers. They're really nervous of their own backbenchers, aren't they? You know, no yeah. deal has got to be kept as a, some sort of phantom to to scare Labour. Yeah. Uh, another pounds and pence story. Rachel, you um, uncovered some government plans to potentially in. in- Pose zero tariffs on all imports if there's no deal. What's that about? This is again, yeah, under yeah. the uh, under a no deal scenario, um, we we could potentially see um, all tariffs on imports cut to zero, and as as we speak, Liam Fox is refusing to rule out that eventuality. Um, so this emerged after he and the PM were in Stoke. And they met with um, someone from the ceramics, the British Ceramics Federation. Um, so that's Stoke Potteries, um, very high Brexit vote in in Stoke. There's a big industry for them, and they've they've they told the Ceramics Foundation, uh, sorry, the Ceramics Federation, that um, they would have to make a, a case as to why their industry should be exempt, and that 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 would be the same whatever, whatever industry. So this would have um, potentially huge consequences. Were were we to get to that point where um, you could see potentially the market flooded with cheap goods um, industries such as ceramics would have to compete with with China you know with with not literal China not cups, cups <laughs> China <laughs> the country of China <laughs> um, and you'd you know it also would have like profound um, consequences for farming yeah um, where they'd have to compete with you know French farmers and um, US farmers um, yeah and they're, as we speak, continuing to rule it out. A very interesting element to this is there a bit of a cabinet split over how much this button should be should be pressed. Um, Greg Clark, um, the Remain backing uh, business secretary, has kind of said we have to absolutely defend industry when he was asked about it. Mm. So wasn't willing to back his colleague up on it. Yeah, I think it's worth being clear. I mean, you know, sheep farmers would be shafted. Because they export to Europe and will face tariffs, and then they'll face tariff-free imports from New Zealand. I mean, it will decimate industries like that. But the second thing is, there's the small matter of the World Trade Organization here, is do we really want to be in a position where we just unilaterally get rid of all tariffs with everyone? Then how do we negotiate trade deals with them? We'll have nothing less to give. I mean, there are are all sorts of spillovers to this. I mean sort of mitigating the immediate impact of a no deal is fair enough and it makes sense. I don't actually think tariffs are the main issue with a no deal, but that's fine. Uh, But going forward, it makes no sense in terms of either uh, the view of our economy we tend to have, i.e. which bits we want to protect, or how we intend to go around negotiating trade deals afterwards. So it, it just smacks of panic, this. Also, the the reason behind them doing it is because they're very concerned about um, potential high inflation post a no deal Brexit. So they're, they're 
the reason for for bringing this plan forward was that they were worried that consumers would have to pay an awful lot um, more for their products. But they're also forced into it by the fact that it's the trade bill, which is mm-hmm. the, the the vehicle for this change. And, and, and as Rachel reported, you know, it was going to be an executive order and an amendment to the trade bill and, and sort of a tweak of it. Um, that was the format. And the real problem they've got is that they've got to sort that out, that trade bill. And this is not a problem that's going to go away. So they have to make up the minds up. Are we going to do this or are we not if we want to keep the trade bill? And um, I actually think that it, I don't think it is panic, actually. I think it's a long-term Liam Fox strategy. I think when I talked to him two, three years ago, he was determined that very low, if not zero, tariffs would be the immediate consequence um, straight after a, a, a what was for him a WTO-style Brexit, if there was one. So I think he's always had this in the locker. He's a true believer in it. It would be for a limited period to get us over that initial bump that they all talk about, these no-dealers. Um, but he's no and, longer a no-dealer, is he? Well, I know. He's, he's changed. He's in, is, is in theory part of the government that's backing this agreement. But he can't resist these little, you know, okay. ticks to what he really does believe, I think. And, uh, and I think that's part of the problem. And you're right. It's not just tariffs. It's regulation that's the real issue for a lot of business. I mean, how bad would a no-deal be? We hear a lot of competing arguments on this, Anand. Well, nothing like this has happened before, so it's very, very hard to say. And the one thing, I mean, I, I, I think it's awfully brave of people like the Bank of England to try and model it, because I don't think you can, because ultimately what we're talking about is chronic uncertainty, chronic legal uncertainty. Under what rules am I trading with that bloke in Germany? Well, actually, we don't know, because most of the rules have just ceased to exist. I don't believe that you could enter a situation like that without having significant disruption. Okay, uh, I'm not going to pinpoint what it is. You know, Defra's got an obsession about Mars bars at the moment, and the fact that we're going to run out of Mars bars because they import something that we're going to run out of. But there will be disruptions all over the place. At the same time, time the pound will plummet. I mean, that has to happen in the event we mm. fall out with no deal. So the, it's going to have a significant and immediate economic impact. One of my colleagues is just writing a piece in which he reckons that in the event that we head towards no deal, we will have a first quarter recession because the impact in March will be so severe. Uh, so most economists who are looking at these numbers think that the short term impact of this will be massive. Yeah, and you were on Question Time recently where the audience was yeah. cheering the idea yeah, of a were. no deal. I mean, what did you make of that? Well, I mean, terror was was my overwhelming reaction to that whole experience. <laughs> that was, I think. Terror just been yeah, on there, wasn't it? <laughs> it was terror. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was. It, I mean, two reactions, I suppose. One is, you know, when they cheered, I thought to myself, oh, "God." But secondly, actually, when when they came to me to say my bit about it, and I said essentially what I've just said now, uh, they listened. So I don't. I mean, you know, uh, so two different reactions. On the one hand, no, oh, my word, they're cheering, no deal. But on the other hand, they're not got to the point where they're just going to boo anyone who seems to disagree with them off. So actually, I took out from that to an extent. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, the whole idea of, of no deal is so simple. It's so easy to grasp if you're a voter, if you're a Leave voter. Yeah. This, this phrase, clean Brexit, you know, it, it sounds clean. It sounds, you know, smooth. And, and actually, you know, it's not the disruptive thing that every, a lot of the experts and economists are But as are I said that about. night, it's also fundamentally misleading because yeah. they they equate it with not buying something in the shops, coming home with nothing. So they equate it with the status quo ante, I think. Uh, I mean, actually, not. We, we've done some polling that, that indicates that most people, that very, very few people think no deal means we carry on as before. But I'm still not convinced that most people get just how different it will be from before if we yeah, do no good deal. Point. And the Bank of England today, on your point about recession, 
only today at lunchtime has said actually it looks like you know growth will be quite anemic and there's the new PMI stats that suggest that yeah. for the first quarter of this year you know we really could have zero growth so um it's tricky you know the course what will happen is all the brexiteers will say no nah, that's nothing to do with brexit really yeah. you know that's just the underlying state of the economy the global economy and we'll get that whole debate again about whether it's global or british um and some of them say you know a lower pound is actually great for exports and you get all that stuff again the question is whether or not the people in the middle the people who are open to listening to arguments as 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 Anand says, are going to change their minds. But I spoke when I spoke to Gareth Snell, who leave, um, represents a, a Labour MP who represents a very high Leave vote area. He told me that No Deal is very, very, very popular. He gets letters about it every day. It's a lot of the other Labour leavers mm. that. And look at the statistics to. on Tory party members, and you know, well over half of them will either be very pleased or perfectly comfortable with a No Deal outcome, and they're the people who are writing to Tory MPs now. With that, let's cleanly transition to the quiz. Um, since Theresa May is heading to Dublin tomorrow for dinner with Leo Varadka, I thought we'd talk about Anglo-Irish relations today. And uh. we've, got to be, we've got to be pretty quick today, so it's going to be a quick quiz. So question number one, it's fairly straightforward, just a straightforward question and answer this week. Who was the first British Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and when did they take office? Jeez. Bloody hell. Who was the first? When was Northern Ireland created? Um, I suppose 1920. I'm going to bow out. Uh, late 1920s. Already. So could it have been, this is a bit bit curveball, could it have been one of Winston Churchill's mad jobs in the 1920s? I don't know. Something in the 20s. I agree with Paul. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> no, the, the first actual Secretary of State was Willie Whitelaw in 1972. Oh. Right, of course, could post Stormont and all this that. This is very unfair. I'm the only person I know who's not eligible for an Irish passport. It seems. Uh, I'm not, yeah. I'm the yeah. two of us, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll have this conversation yeah. outside, I think. <laughs> what was the result of the referendum to approve the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland and the parallel referendum in the Republic? What was the result? Yeah. The, so like 40, percentage, 52, 80, right. 20. Was it 72? Two. That sounds right to me. I think it's in the 70s. Yeah, it's 71 yes. Oh, very good. 29 no. And there was a parallel referendum in the Republic, um, which was required to fully approve the process. 94 yes. Ah, oh, wow. Uh, 5.6 no. Yeah. Uh, final question. The Queen's visit to Ireland in 2011 was the first by a British monarch to the Republic. But who was the first Irish head of state to visit the UK and when? Mary Robinson, mm. the president. I'm guessing that because she was quite groundbreaking. I think it was Mary Robinson. When? But I don't know when. Uh, 99. I'm just going to say 99. Rachel, pass, what do you think? Pass. Anand? I think it's Mary Robinson. And I think well, I'll say 97. Michael D. Higgins, oh, the president pass. in 2014. God, it took that long. Really? Really? Well, I mean, check your answers. And that's all we've got time for. <laughs> Let, let's finish with Jeremy Corbyn's Eurosceptic rant from 2009, in which he calls the EU a military Frankenstein. And under the terms of the Lisbon Treaty, Europe will become subservient to the wishes of NATO and the aims of NATO. We are creating for ourselves here one massive great Frankenstein which will damage all of us in the long run. What it does is creates this military machine, this military Frankenstein, which will be so damaging to all of us.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.